Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, July 2nd, 2020, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha for the double portion of Hukas Balak. This Shabbos is a double portion, and it's quite unusual that these two portions would go together. Uh, normally they do not. The reason for the double portion this Shabbos is because uh, Shavuos was Friday and Saturday. So inside Israel, Friday was Yom Tov, Saturday was a regular Shabbos, so they read that week's regular Shabbos Torah reading. But outside of Israel, Shavuos was two days, so we read a special Torah reading for the first day of Shavuos and a special Torah reading for the second day of Shavuos. So we did not get to that week's Torah portion until the next week. So we have been one week behind Israel since Shavuos. And now this Shabbos we will catch up by doing two. And then after that, uh, we will be in sync again. However, this evening, I'd like to share with you three pieces that happened to all be on the first part, the Parsha of Chukas. I have a fear that many people evaluate the Torah based on, is it relevant to me? So, love your fellow like yourself? Yes, certainly. Karbanos, sacrifices? No. Paraduma, the red heifer, forget about it. So that's the subject of this, of this week's Parsha of Chukas. And to look at it as something that we don't do, it's not relevant, to, practically relevant to us, it's not applicable to us, it is foreign, it is esoteric, it is strange, and then we kind of uh, push it to the side, that would be a shame. It's a shame because every word of the Torah expresses something unique about God. We know God through studying God's Torah. More concretely, every subject in the Torah is integrated. And that means that the most arcane mitzvah has concepts and values and lessons that are practically relevant to all of us, even those formal mitzvos which are not now applicable. And the example that I want to use tonight is para aduma. Para aduma, which means a red calf or a red heifer, is a mitzvah to respond to the experience of being close to death. Death is a physical problem, it's an emotional problem, and it's also a spiritual problem. So how does God want us to navigate that experience in life? And this is one of several mitzvot in the Torah several components that help us through this experience. The experience of death, 
loss, grief, and by extension, other difficulties and challenges that we face in life. So, the beginning of the parsha describes the procedure for preparing the para-aduma, and it is very mysterious, like death is mysterious. There is an animal, a calf, that has only red hairs, no hairs of another color. The calf is sacrificed, it is burned, the ashes, a small amount of the ashes are mixed with water, and that's how it's prepared. So basically you end up with a large amount of water with a small amount of ash mixed into it. Then, a person who is tame, which means ritually impure, a person who has come into contact with the dead body, and the consequence of that is that they are not allowed to enter the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, they're not allowed to offer a sacrifice. That person then comes to a Kohen, and that person goes through a seven-day procedure. On the third day and the seventh day, they appear before the Kohen, and the Kohen dips his fingers into this water and sprinkles it on the person. That's called Hazah, sprinkling. And then, again on the seventh day, the person will immerse in a mikvah. That's called Tevila, immersion in a mikvah. And then a person is Tahar. They are ritually pure. They leave behind this status of being ritually impure. Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, the Rav of Blessed Memory, points out that there are two paths that a person has to follow when they are in this status of Tameh, having come into contact with a dead body. Both of these paths involve coming into contact with water. Water is a symbol of life. Water is a symbol of rebirth. And so there are two paths, two rituals that a person has to go through relating to water. But the paths are quite different. And the difference in the two paths provide a profound lesson that is applicable to every single one of us. So the Torah says, I'm on page... 840 in the Stone Chumash. It's chapter 19, verse 19. Page 840 in the Stone Chumash, near the bottom. Pasuk 19. V'hiza ha-tahar al The one who is tahar, pure, that means the Kohen, will sprinkle this water onto the one that is tame. Bayom ha-shlishi or bayom on the third day and on the seventh day, and then the person on the seventh day will immerse in a mikvah, and he will be ritually pure that evening. Two processes over a course of seven days. Hazaa, the Kohen sprinkling water on him, and Tvila, the person immersing in a mikvah. Says the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, the two cleansing acts, Hazaa and Tvila, 
are strikingly dissimilar. Tvila, immersing in a mikvah, requires that the person enter the water entirely on his own initiative. It cannot be done for him. Tvila, therefore, implies a capacity to change one's condition. It reflects human initiative, creativity, and freedom, the ability of man to transform his life. Hazah, the sprinkling, also involves water, but the situation is different. The tame, the person who is ritually impure, cannot sprinkle it upon himself. It must always be vihiza hata'ar al hatame. The Kohen sprinkles onto the one who is ritually impure. He cannot liberate himself. He is dependent upon others, and his own initiative is not enough. So this ultimate level of tumma, of ritual impurity, which is coming into contact with the dead body, requires both paths. In other realms, one or the other of these two paths might suffice. But here's the truth. There are two paths to helping yourself out of a dark place. One path involves using your own initiative to take yourself out. And the other path requires the help of another to assist you in getting out of that darkness. And of course, in a given situation, a combination of the two may be what is necessary. But we cause ourselves a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache and problems by not choosing correctly which of these paths we need or when both of them are needed. Often when we have a situation where really there is no way for us to get ourselves out of it, we require the assistance of someone else, we will stubbornly hold on to thinking, I can do it myself. And exactly the opposite is also true. Sometimes I will keep looking for someone to help me, someone to get me out of this, when in fact the solution is exclusively within myself. In every situation, we should try to be open to needing either our own initiative or the help of another or a combination of both. But the lesson from our Parsha, and maybe it's ironic that such a practical lesson derives from such an esoteric source, but the lesson is these two paths, Hazah and Tvila, and our need to consciously choose how to confront and overcome even the greatest tragedy. Let me move to number two. If you turn, please, in the Chumash to the next page. 
in the Stone Chumash, page 842. It's chapter 20, Pasuk number Bays, number 2, top half of the page. The Torah describes in our Parsha, V'lohaya mayim la'eda, and the people did not have water. They're thirsty, and they gather up in front of Moshe and Aaron, and they complained. God says to Moshe, here's what you do. Take your staff, gather the people together, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak to the rock in front of the people, and the rock will give forth abundant water, and the people will be able to drink. Moshe goes over to the rock. Instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock. The rock does give forth abundant water and the people drink. But apparently, a catastrophe has happened. God says to Moshe and Aaron, Yan lohemantem bilag disheni Israel. Because you did not sanctify me in the eyes of all of Israel, you did something terribly wrong. The punishment will be the worst possible punishment for Moshe and Aaron. You will not succeed in your life's journey to reach Israel. You will pass away before the Jewish people cross over into Israel. Moshe does something wrong. God sends the water to the people. And then God gives Moshe this terrible, terrible punishment. Now, the first problem is what exactly did Moshe do wrong? And I have shared several different approaches with you. We'll leave that question for another time. But what is more puzzling is why is it that Moshe lost control specifically at this moment? First of all, if you're in a desert and there's no water, I can tell you in advance, people are going to complain. So this should not have been any surprise to Moshe that people complain when there was no water. He should have seen it coming. And the fact is, this happened before. It happened at least two times that we know of in the book of Shmos in Exodus chapter 15 and again in the book of Shmos chapter 17. And both times Moshe deals with that problem in a calm way. He doesn't lose his temper. And that's in addition to all the other complaints that Moshe had to deal with over the entire 40 years. And Moshe dealt with most of them in a calm, professional manner. So why is it that specifically at this moment Moshe loses control and does something terrible with the consequence that he is not able to go into Israel? And even more than this is God told Moshe what to do first. Listen one more time to the psukim. Again on, again on page 842 near the bottom of the page. So first, there's no water and the people are thirsty. 
Okay, now, <clears throat> God says to Moshe, take your staff, go to the rock, speak to the rock, and the rock will give forth abundant water. So, why then, in the next Pusik, in the next paragraph, does Moshe lose his temper with the Jewish people? He already knew what to do. God told him what to do. It would be one thing if Moshe was confronted with a problem, there was no solution. A problem with no solution? Ah, they is mere, I don't know what to do. But here, God gave the solution before. Moshe knew what to do. So why was he so agitated? Why did he lose his temper? Why could he not remain calm? So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs suggests a very creative answer and a very important answer for us to understand. This passage of the people being thirsty follows immediately upon another passage. Page 842 in the Stone Chumash, chapter 20, verse 1, near the top of the page, the fourth line from the top. Remember, the parsha started with the esoteric subject of Paraduma, the red heifer. The third subject is the people are thirsty and Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock. What comes in between? A very short narrative. Vayavo b'nei Yisrael kol ha'eda midbarzin b'chodesh rishon, vayeshev ha'am b'kodesh, and the people came to the desert of Tzin, v'tamas sham Miriam. Miriam died. V'tikover sham, and she was buried there. Immediately after that verse, the people do not have water. Miriam died. What's the connection between Miriam dying and Moshe losing his temper over hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock? There are a number of suggestions that are given by rabbis, but let me share something that comes from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Miriam was Moshe's older sister. When Miriam died, Moshe suffered a loss of emotional equilibrium. Because Miriam was much more than just an older sister, which it, that in itself we can understand that a person is very troubled and very upset. But Moshe, but Miriam was much more than that to Moshe. Miriam, as a little girl, had watched over Moshe as a baby when he was put into a basket and sent along the Nile. She kept him alive. She had the courage and the initiative to approach the daughter of Paro and suggest that the daughter of Paro adopt this baby and then come up with the idea that a Jewish woman should nurse this baby, which was actually Moshe's mother, which had the consequence that Moshe would actually be raised by his own mother and have a sense of his own identity and a sense of his own family, which was impossible for anyone else under the decrees of Paro. And even more than that, 
Our rabbis tell us in the Midrash a fascinating story. Amram and Yocheved were married to each other. They had two children, Miriam and Aaron. And then Paro, I'm talking about years before now when the Jews were still enslaved in Egypt. Paro made a decree that any Jewish baby that is born, if it's a boy, he'll be killed. The girls will be kept alive. So Amram and Yocheved said to each other, we have two children, a boy and a girl. The next child is a 50% chance it's a boy or a girl. How can we take a 50% chance that a baby that we're going to have will right away be, God forbid, killed, drowned in the Nile? And they said to themselves, we're going to divorce. They separated. Little Miriam, this little girl, goes over to her parents and she says, Mommy and Tati, I don't know what she says. Abba and Ima. She says, you're worse than Paro. Paro only wanted to kill the boys, the girls he would keep alive. But by you separating, you're preventing boys and girls from coming into the world. You're worse than Paro. And Amram and Yocheved listened to her. They realized that her logic was correct and they reunited and they had another baby. And that baby was Moshe. Miriam was not only an older sister to Moshe. And she was not only a person who saved Moshe's life when it was in danger. Miriam was the foundation of his life. Without Miriam, Moshe would not have been born. Moshe owed his very existence to Miriam. And here's the truth. When you are bereaved, you lose control. You find that you're angry when the situation calls for calm. You hit when you should speak. You speak when you should be silent. And even when God himself has told you what to do, you're only half listening. You hear the words, but they don't fully sink in. That is a consequence of grief. I remember once, years ago, I was officiating at a funeral. A, hu a man, a husband had passed away. His wife was there. <clears throat> she was standing next to me. It was a particularly emotional funeral. And she looked around at all the people who were at the funeral and she said to me quietly, she said to me, you know that we are all actors in a play, right? This isn't real. This isn't actually happening. That's what grief does. <clears throat> Moshe at the rock was a human. He was a bereaved brother and he was not fully in control of himself. 
And that explains the order of the narratives in our Parsha. First, the Torah starts with the law, Paraduma, this strange, mysterious ceremony for responding to a person who is undergoing connection to grief and loss. And then the Torah tells us a story about a woman, Miriam, who dies. And then the Torah tells us a story about a man, Moshe, that because of his grief, he is not himself. And this is one of the most fundamental principles of Judaism. Death transforms every one of us. It changes us. Sometimes the changes are visible, but sometimes the change is invisible. Just like Tumah. We translate this as ritual impurity. People often make a mistake because of that English translation. Tumah is a status that is invisible. It has nothing to do with hygiene. It has nothing to do with cleanliness. It's invisible. It means that you are different in a way that is invisible to anyone. Death affects us in ways that we cannot predict and often in ways that we do not even recognize. And with great subtlety, the Torah mixes law and narrative together. The law of Paraduma, the narrative of Miriam dying, the narrative of Moshe for a moment losing control to show us the effect that grief and loss and mourning has on us. Let me share with you an analogy. I've shared this before. If a person drinks alcohol, they're affected by it. Their motor skills, their response time, their driving ability, we're affected by alcohol. One of the effects that alcohol has on a person is that you think that you are still able to drive. You think that you are not affected by it. That is one of the effects that alcohol has that actually increases the danger because we think we're not affected by it. But of course we are. Grief is similar. And that's why we need to be taught by the Torah how we are affected by grief, especially when we don't think we are affected. Now, this is a very, very practical concept with a very practical consequence. And this is to anyone going through grief or trauma or transition in life, don't make major decisions. Wait. It's not the time. Because you will not recognize how much your decision making is affected by what you are going through. Hold off on major decisions. That's number one. Number two, of course, be understanding of someone else who is in mourning. Who does something or says something that appears unreasonable. Be empathetic 
that they are not themselves. But on a deeper level, this is what death is. This is what death causes. And this is true on an individual level. And it's also true on a national level. This Thursday, a week from today, is Shavasar Batamas, the 17th day of Tamas. It's a fast day that begins a three-week period of mourning and sadness leading up to Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av, where we mourn the destruction of the first temple and the second temple. We engage in a day of mourning and sadness. So we're about to enter this period. In Arshmon Asrei, the prayer that we say three times a day in the Amidah, we say a prayer, one of the paragraphs in the middle, we pray to God, blow the shofar signifying redemption. Bring us out of exile. Redeem us. Take us all back to Israel with the ushering in of the Messianic era. In other words, undo what was caused by this three-week period of destruction and bring us back in redemption. The next paragraph says, Hashiva Shovtenu Kvarishona. Return our judges like they used to be in earlier times. Vahaser Mimenu Yagon Vaanacha and remove from us sadness and moaning. Now that's a very strange series of prayers. What's the connection between redemption and leaders or judges and moaning and groaning? It's this lesson. Until the national mourning ends, until this exile ends, we are still in a period without being able to make the best choices because we do not have the best leaders. And so we suffer from grief and confusion and lack of clarity. And that's what we pray for to end. We pray that God will blow the shofar of redemption. We will be redeemed and brought back to Israel. And then we will have proper leaders and judges. And then we will be able to make the right decisions. We'll have the right guidance in our lives, which we are missing now. We pray that we are coming to an end of this exile. We are getting closer and closer. But every one of us goes through it. And knowing it will happen, even to Moshe, is the best way to prepare for it. Our sages say, Kol Hamis Abel al Yerushalayim, whoever mourns for Jerusalem, Zoha Liras Benuya, that person will merit to see it rebuilt. 
if we mourn for Jerusalem, as we will over the three weeks starting next week, as we mourn for Jerusalem, we will understand what it is that we are missing. And understanding what it is that we are missing is the key to getting it back. Permit me to share one last piece. <clears throat> so, the same narrative of hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock in a stone chumash, page 842, chapter 20, start with verse number 7. Okay, so remember, the people were thirsty. They come and complain to Moshe. Moshe doesn't know what to do. And God says to Moshe, Take the staff, take your staff, and gather together the people, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak to the rock. This is to Moshe. Moshe should speak to the rock, and the rock will bring forth abundant water. Vayikach Moshe. Next page, Esamate. Moshe takes his staff. Vayikolu Moshe v'Aaron esakohol el pnei And Moshe and Aaron gather the people. Vayomer lohem. And Moshe says to them, Listen, you people, you rebellious people, see that I'm going to bring forth water from this. And Moshe hits the rock twice and abundant water comes out. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe vel Aharon. Moshe says to, God says to Moshe and Aharon, you have done a terrible sin and your punishment is that neither of you will cross over into the land of Israel. Okay. What did Moshe do wrong? I alluded to that before. A lot of different opinions. We've discussed that other times. But let me ask you a question. What did Aharon do wrong? He didn't do anything. Uh, he had no role. And that begs the second question. Why was he there? Why did God speak to Moshe and Aaron when it was only Moshe who was going to do something? There doesn't seem to have been any role for Aharon in this whole thing. He is silent. He is motionless. Why was he there? And why was he punished? Now, this too builds on what I said before. Moshe and Aaron were the closest brothers in the entire Torah. There are no other there is no other set of brothers in the entire Torah that is as close as Moshe and Aaron. They loved each other. They supported each other. They worked together their entire lives. The fact of their mutual love and respect for each other is exemplified by the fact that throughout the entire Torah, God often calls both of them. Sometimes God calls 
Moshe and Aaron. Remember, Aaron is older. Moshe is younger. Sometimes God calls Moshe and Aharon, and sometimes God calls Aharon and Moshe. Sometimes the names are reversed to indicate that they both treated each other as equals. As such, Moshe and Aaron provide the counterpoint to the opposite set of brothers, Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel. At the very beginning of the Torah, page 20 in the Stone Chumash, chapter 4, Pasuk number Ches, number 8, Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, they were working one day Vayakam Cain el Hevel achiv vayahar gehu. Cain murdered his brother Hevel. Could not be any more different than the relationship between Moshe and Aharon. Vayomer Hashem el Cain, God spoke to Cain, to Cain, and he said to him, Ei Hevel achicha, where is Hevel your brother? You understand, of course, God does not need to ask Cain where Hevel is, but he asks him, Where is your brother? Bayomer, loyadati. He says, I don't know, which is a lie. Of course, he knows. He's laying at the spot where he fell when Cain murdered him. Okay, but he says, I don't know. And then Cain adds a rhetorical question. Hashomer achi Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's watcher? Why should I know where he is? Now, we understand that um, the right answer to that question is yes. You should be looking out for your brother. Certainly, you should not be murdering your brother. But the Radak, one of the classic commentators, expands on Cain's words. Cain was saying to God, Listen, me and my brother, we're two separate people. Who holech limlachto? He goes to his work. Ani limlachti. I go to my work. Am I a watchman? Am I his watcher that wherever he goes with his flocks and his sheep, I've got to know where he goes? I'm busy with my work. He's busy with his work. We go our own way. Why would you expect me to know where he is? Where is he? How should I know? In this understanding, there's a straight line from Cain and Hevel at the worst extreme of how brothers should act towards each other to Moshe and Aaron, the best example of how brothers should act towards each other. So what does that mean? To be the opposite of Cain and Hevel means... At all times, Moshe and Aharon did know where each other were. 
and they loved each other and supported each other. There was no enmity between them. And their answer to the question, Hashomer Ochi Anochi, am I my brother's keeper? Of course I am my brother's keeper. And of course I know where he is at every moment. But there's a deep, deeper meaning to the word Shomer. The well-known translation, am I my brother's keeper? Keeper means, do I know where he is? Am I aware of where he is? But that's not really what the word Shomer means. Shomer means to protect, to guard, to protect from doing wrong. We refer to a person as Shomer Shabbat. Shomer Shabbat doesn't mean a person who is aware that Saturday is the Sabbath. Shomer Shabbat means a person who guards the Sabbath to observe it properly, who protects it, who elevates it, who protects the holiness of the day, who makes sure that nothing goes wrong on the Sabbath day. That is Shomer Shabbat. The people complained to Moshe. They had no water. They didn't complain to Aaron, and that makes sense, because Moshe was the leader. And therefore, God spoke to Moshe, and God said, take Aaron. But Aaron didn't do anything. Exactly. Aaron was there. God said, take Aaron. Aaron was there to be a brother. To be a Shomer. Aaron should have stepped in and whispered in Moshe's ears. Maybe talk a little respectfully to the people. Moshe, don't yell. Stay calm. Moshe, remember... You've done this before. You know how to handle this situation. You can do this calmly. Just follow what Hashem commanded you. And Aaron could have done that in a gentle and private way, whispering in his ear, in a way that Moshe could have heard it, in a constructive way and accepted it because he knew that Aaron was whispering in his ear with love. Do you know who really loves you? The one who will tell you your faults in private. That's why Aaron was there. But he did not live up to his job. He was silent. He did not whisper in Moshe's ear. He was not a Shomer Ach, one who guards and protects his brother at that moment. Now maybe Aharon's problem was the same that I suggested before about Moshe's problem. Aharon had also lost a sister. But in any event, God was disappointed in Moshe for whatever reason 
you want to accept among the commentators that what, what Moshe did wrong. But God was also disappointed in Aharon for being silent, for not being a Shomer Ach, a protector of his brother. There's a famous verse in Tehillim. Many of us know this, we sing this. Behold what is good and beautiful when brothers and sisters dwell together, live together in harmony. Brothers and sisters can live together in harmony. That is tov v'noyim, good and beautiful. It's beautiful. And by the way, let's be honest. We have a long way to go just to reach that I don't want to talk about other people. I have a long way to go just to reach that. But it's not enough. If the only level you and your siblings are able to reach is Sheves Yachad, that you're able to live together in harmony, that's great, that's wonderful. Halavai, we could all get there. But there is one more requirement to also be a Shomer Ach, one who guards and protects and is looking out for my brother and my sister. And to be willing at a pivotal moment to say something privately with love. No, my brother, that's not the way. Try this way. This is the path. This time, Aharon did not live up to it. And the lesson for us is that we need to do this for each other. We need to do this for those that we love. And we need to do this for those who are relying on us, whether they realize it or not, to help them quietly, privately, constructively, with love, to help them be the best part of themselves. My friends, I wish you a great Shabbos. I look forward to seeing all of you soon. <laughs>